This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined as always by managing editor Andrew Keats. What's up, pal? How are you? Doing all right. It's good to have you here. It's good to be here with you. Fellow managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Hello, Lopez. Hello. How's it going? Coming up on the show this week, the biggest school district in the region, San Diego Unified, is about to pick its new superintendent. Or maybe trustees already picked him many months ago. We'll explain. And a measure approved by San Diego voters last year, Measure E, removed the coastal height limit for the Midway District. This is crucial for redevelopment of the city's sports arena land and would help many plots of land in that dumpy area get the thousands of new homes predicted in its community plan. But a new court ruling puts all of that in jeopardy. We'll tell you what happened. And finally, we have our favorite immunologist, Dr. Shane Crotty from the La Jolla Institute of Immunology. He came on to talk on the podcast about Omicron, what we know, what we don't know, and the latest on vaccines and boosters. That's all coming up. Stay with us. But first, we're in the final stretches of our fundraising campaign. And as of now, we have about $60,000 left to raise or Andy gets fired. No, I'm kidding. Not going to do that. It's not a good fundraising strategy. Our total goal was $250,000. Everyone's been so generous and so supportive already. Thank you. If you value what we do here, I I joke, I I laugh, but December is big for us. We need this uh, these resources to come in so we can make payroll for many months to come. This is the time. It's so important. If you value the show, if you value our investigations, if you just value Andrea and that's it, that's fine. She still needs things. Head to VOSD.org slash podcast 2021 to support this show. That's VOSD.org slash podcast 2021 to support this show. If you donate and you mention the podcast, that adds value to the podcast so we can ask for more resources for the podcast and and do more podcasting for all the things. What do you need for 2022? (laughs) More reporters. There you go. More reporters. When you give... You can write us notes, too. Our team loves reading those notes, especially the ones about me. Benjamin Nichols did. He said, I like the podcast, Investigations. I choose you. You got to catch them all. Thank you, Benjamin. We will. Lynn Vasquez says that today's article on the military hunger insecurity was just what I needed for my grant due Wednesday. Hope we didn't out you <laughs> with your sources, but it's a good source. Good story. Thank you, Lynn. 
Nancy Hope, big, big podcast fan. She says, you guys are my local news buddies. Thank you for keeping me informed. Thank you. I like that. Local news buddies. That's cute. Get little shirts. Get a t-shirt that says yeah. that. Yeah. Your local news buddies. And Michael Flores says, I listened to the I listen to the podcast every week. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you to everyone who gave in the last week. We appreciate you and we promise to keep giving you this show and the journalism you need over 2022. Again, that link to support us is VOSD.org slash podcast twenty twenty one. VOSD.org slash podcast twenty twenty one. And we'll put that link in the show notes. So I don't know about you, but I started to get a little uh, reckless with the mask. Like just just st- stopped remembering them as part of like, you know, it's, it's your keys, your AirPods, your phone, your wallet and the mask. Right. That's what I always was like tapping my pockets for and stuff. But over the last I don't know, two months, got a little sloppy. Then, you know, I always made sure I had one. But I but, you know, they had really made a case in San Diego. We were not going to be required to wear masks indoors as long as there was sufficient capacity in the hospitals that remember Nathan Fletcher, you remember this quote, Andy, where he was, he told us in the politics report, he said, every other measure, every other thing you do to control the virus distracts from the one thing we need to do, which is get people vaccinated. We are not going to go down that path. So I kind of went with that. But then this week, (laughs) the governor who is not, Nathan Fletcher said that we need to wear masks indoors for the whole state. Yeah. And in my experience in town, I think the uh, enforcement rate is pretty high, like back to what it was before. Uh, there aren't many places that seem to be flaunting the the rule. In my limited experience in the Golden Hill, downtown North it, Park neighborhoods of the last two days. What are you seeing? You seeing masks? Well, I went to Target yesterday and they, you know, had signs up. I've seen a couple of places that just say, you know, please put your mask on before mm-hmm. coming indoors, whatever. And, you know, I was at Target and pretty much everyone was wearing a mask except for like a handful of people. But I mean, I like it. It keeps my nose warm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just so important during these cold days. <laughs> it was cold today. There was a news item that, that Coronado Mayor Richard Bailey and El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells were not going to enforce the mask mandate. And I just want to be clear, like literally no city or cop is going to enforce the mask mandate. That's part of the problem is that it's basically like minimum wage retail workers that have to enforce anything like this. And it's just, that's what bothers me is that it, one of the things with the mask mandate is that it's putting the burden on collective control of the virus on people who already are doing everything they can, right? And as opposed to like a vaccine mandate that would put the burden on people who aren't vaccinated, right? Like if you if you had a mandate for vaccines to go into like a restaurant or something like that, that would mean like that would be that would be a burden or problem for people who weren't vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, it would still require enforcement from some frontline sure, person. Sure. Uh, I think it's just, I don't know, Just it was all just a little weird. So I wanted to make sure I got some context on it all. We have Professor Shane Crotty from the La Jolla Institute of Immunology came in. He explained Omicron, 
Did you know it's not a variant of Delta? It's not like Delta turned into something. It's a variant of the original uh, coronavirus. So what he said, yeah, what he said was what happened was that likely the hypothesis is that somebody got the virus and they're like immunocompromised or whatever, had it for like months probably. And it just developed and it kept overriding their immune response to the point where it finally went to somebody else. And it was like this like, you know, monster. <laughs> this, yeah, this mutant that is that is a lot more transmissible. It, it, it the variations are just orders of magnitude more uh, complex than what we saw with Delta, and it is spreading fast. So he taught us a lot about that. He also said, you know, before he was on here, he's like, I'm not sure if I'm getting booster. He's like, the booster is the only thing we know that's for sure uh, responding well to this, and uh, a lot of other things like that. It sounds so scary, you know. Kind of sounds like a transformer to me. Yeah, like know. Omicron's coming. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. I, you were worried the other day. There, there. It feels like 2020, kind of like things are starting to like dominoes. Yeah, I just keep seeing things. Keep new announcements. I was, Concerts closed. I was supposed to go see a concert on Saturday that's been canceled. Not exactly thrilled about it in Maryland, where my my hometown. They've canceled all before and after school programs of any kind. No sports for kids. Oh God. It's always the first to go. It's never just like bars first. It's always the schools. Yeah. <laughs> bars are essential. Yeah. I need to, come on. Yeah. Let's. All right. First things first, close the opium dens. Yeah. Once the opium <laughs> dens are closed, we can move on to whatever the, the next most egregious activity is. So this week, San Diego Unified board members announced that they will interview two people for the open superintendent position. So just to review, Cindy Martin went on to become deputy secretary of education for the United States of America, and she left her job as superintendent of San Diego Unified School District. And they immediately appointed Lamont Jackson, who was a sort of a, a, you know deputy to her, as the interim superintendent, but then they promised an open process for many months to find the new one. So they impaneled like 40 people onto this group that was supposed to just take public feedback for months, months. They did that, and then they were supposed to come up with a narrowed list of candidates from the applicant pool, and then the school board was going to decide who the finalists were, and that's what's happened now. Mm -hmm. Got it? I do. Okay, so the two finalists are Lamont Jackson, who's in that role now as the interim. And then the second one is a woman named Susan Enfield. She is from, she is the superintendent of a suburban Seattle school district, a district that has 17,000 students. Just to be clear, about 110,000 fewer than San Diego Unified. Which San Diego Unified is a giant school district. Right? One of the biggest in the United States of America. Second largest in the state. Mm-hmm. So, um, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, n- not to in any way uh, cast aspersions on Miss Enfield, who I have n- no doubt is a qualified person who deserves every opportunity to advance her career and move on to bigger and better things. She got like superintendent of the year. She seemed yeah. very thoughtful. They were very, she, she announced she was stepping down from the school district called Highline School District. Uh, because she wants to get a job in a place like California, right? Um, so I don't I don't know anything about her other than the little bit we've been able to read in the last couple of days. 
But it does kind of seem like this baby is cooked. (laughs) (laughs) So, Andy, are you telling me that you think that Susan Enfield is not going to win the job over the guy who's had it for the last year, who kind of grew up here, who they picked immediately last year? Here's what I'll say is if that's the decision they end up making, they have put her in an awfully difficult position to be selected over a the interim the, the person who's already been doing the job who's been in the district for a long time um and with her being elevated from a small district to a very large district that she's not lived in that she doesn't know that puts her in from the beginning behind the eight ball yeah and and that makes me think that they're not going to do that because it would put her in such a difficult position. I'm going to go so far as this is this is not happening, Andrea. I'm sorry. But she already left the other school district? She announced she was leaving, yes. Isn't that like something you don't do when you're looking for a job? She's, she's moving on no matter <laughs> right? what. She's, you kind of hang out where you, you are. Ju- you just lost a, left a job. What if, did you... Before you got an offer from Voice of San Diego, did you like throw stuff in the UT offices? And- no, it sounds, like, it sounds very amicable. They yeah, were all very. sad. They loved her. So it's yes. not that she's definitely moving on from that post. Right. Yeah. I, I think, look, the reason this is all happening is 2013 when they hired Cindy Martin for that job, they picked her immediately when the announcement of an opening was was happening in a secret meeting mm. and without any public process at all yeah. to the extent where one of the people who was horrified by the lack of public process was her herself. Yeah. She was like, you have done something that we need to work for years to repair, even though obviously I'm thrilled to get this job. They elevated a, a principal to this top spot in the school district from that. Now, this time around, they similarly appointed somebody immediately to that role, but they said, no, 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 this isn't permanent. We're going to spend a year, literally almost a year, planning what to do and 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 a public process. And it seems pretty clear that they've chosen him. Right. And so we're along the line. They have they made that decision. I'm not quite sure. Maybe at the very beginning or maybe sometime in the middle when they looked at that. But the other thing that sort of hints at this is that they did not contract a search firm. LA LA Unified, for example, hired a new superintendent and they got a a search firm and that search firm helped them poach the Miami superintendent. When Sandag replaced its executive director, they did so with a big ticket search firm. The suburban school district that Ms. Enfield is leaving hired a search firm (laughs) to replace her. But San Diego Unified did not. And so this this all seems like they did pick him the same way they picked her, you know, eight years ago. But then they created this farce process to avoid the allegation that they had done the same thing a second time. Yeah. Now, all you know, there's a lot of crow to eat if they do pick her. But this seems really almost impossible to picture. Well, that's my point is uh, like you don't necessarily need to forecast what happened to say that if they end up picking her from the situation that they've put before us right now, that will put her in a very difficult spot at the start of doing her job. And I think that agencies tend 
to try not to put their newly hired superintendent in that situation. Yeah. Right. It's like setting up for, for, failure. for failure. Or or at least that you have something you need to dig out of on mm-hmm. day one. You, you'd rather have all good news and good feelings on day one. Right. right? In the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And look, I, there's not, nothing to say about Lamont Jackson or, or her. Lamont Jackson reopened schools very effectively, I think, compared to places across the country. I'm looking forward to hopefully evaluating him for, you know, our pursuit of local and excellent schools. But <laughs> this is just, it feels like a very big dog and pony show. Andrea, you did something very dangerous. <laughs> you invited me to explain something. I'm sorry to all the people out there. <laughs> Just kidding. I think it's awesome. Okay. I, feel, I love you when you guys explain stuff. Too. Don't rope me in with him. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're going to try that with Measure E. So let's, let's explain real quick. On the coast, west of the five, on city-owned or city-controlled land, you cannot build buildings that are higher than 30 feet. Mm-hmm. So SeaWorld has roller coasters that are higher than 30 feet. Well, they got a vote of the people that said they could because this was a ballot measure like 50 years ago, right? And it said you you can't build over 30 feet, so you have to get a vote of the people every time you want to get anything built over 30 feet. That's right. And if you, see, if you are driving through the beach communities and you say, well, well there's a building over the 30 feet and there's a building over 30 feet, you're almost exclusively looking at buildings that existed before that site limit was put into place. Right. So the city, this is a separate thing, has a lot of land around sports arena, right? So the sports arena itself, the parking lot, and you know where Phil's Barbecue is, Dixieland Lumber, all those things, those are on city property. So the city wanted to uh, redevelop the sports arena area. Mm-hmm. And so what it did is it started to let the leases on those land, on those land patches run out. Yeah, strategically. They were strategically allowing leases to expire with the view of having some future point where they would all be expired and therefore they could pursue a redevelopment. Different ones expired at different times, so you needed to have a big picture strategy of allowing them all to expire so that you could the land would be free and available at some point. So I remember years ago, uh, a mayoral staff member explaining this whole thing to me. They wanted to make sure... They could get this thing redeveloped. And to do that, they needed to do something else on a parallel track. Exactly at the same time, they needed to begin the process of updating their community plan for the Midway area. So one part of the city, the real estate department, is strategically allowing all of the leases in its in the property that it owns to come up for availability. And the planning department is over here going through the process of changing the development restrictions about what you're allowed to do on all of the property in the Midway area. So much like any other community plan update, they were going to go through and they were going to increase the allowable development in the Midway area. And they were going to do so with the vision of eventually, at some point after adopting the community plan, passing something that would remove the height limit that covers the entire coastal area just specifically 
in Midway. Because so, it was always, for, for years, a lot of people talk about, like, there are parts of the coast that aren't great, right? Mm-hmm. It, sure, there's parts of the coast that are beautiful, but there are parts that seem to be a lot easier to picture high, taller buildings that aren't going to block anybody's views and that could provide a lot of housing in areas where you don't have to use so much energy to keep them cool, all that kind of thing. Or even more specifically, areas that are defined as the coast under this city ordinance that aren't the coast. Right. I was just going to ask, like, (laughs) why a 30-foot limit there? You know, the, The basic reason is that they, the proponents who put the ballot measure on 50 years ago, needed to define the area that was getting a height limit on it, on the ballot, in a way that people could understand. And they could have drawn a very specific line around what they considered the coast, but that would make the measure complicated and difficult to understand. And so politically, they said it needs to be simple. And so they picked the most simple boundaries they could, which was everything west of I-5. And so that roped in areas that aren't broadly considered the coast, like Midway. Yeah, so Midway was one of these places always discussed as like, if we were ever to have an exemption from that, it should be this. And so uh, they began on another parallel track to picture a ballot measure that would remove that height limit. And then another step occurred. The council member from that area, Jen Campbell, who became council president, Agreed. This was this was a big deal because, you know, when you're elected as a city council member from that area, removing the height limit used to be basically like saying, uh, I don't know, what's a good, like you're a Raiders fan or something. Like, yeah. it's like <laughs> you don't do it. Right. It was, it, it was considered the third rail of local politics. It was verboten, like you don't do that. And so for her to do it and somebody else to do it and get it on the ballot... The rest of the city council doesn't care. Right. And so that was a huge deal. You had the mayor supporting you. You had her supporting you. You had a Republican, Chris Cates, supporting it. And the rest of the council seemed fine. And crucially, the community planning group in the Midway area mm-hmm. supported it as well. And in fact, supported it so so much that they wanted to be the face of the, of the campaign to do it. Right. So they uh, got it on the ballot last year. And it passed. It passed at the, about the same uh, level of support that Mayor Todd Gloria got. It was a very- 57%. Yeah, very significant mandate. It happened. And so that's where we're at. And so once that passed, the mayor reopened the process of getting bids for uh, what to do with all that land around sports arena. And they got a ton of bids as revealed this week. But the same day that those bids were due, <laughs> this other thing happened. There are people who did not want this height limit to be removed had sued. Sued before it went even went on the ballot. They, they, they brought a lawsuit right away that this measure was illegally placed before voters. And that lawsuit, a judge finally heard and then made a tentative ruling. The day those bids were due, <laughs> she declared that this was done illegally. And it was done illegally because it did not do an environmental impact report of what that height limit would 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 do, what raising that height limit or removing it would have on impacts on the environment, and specifically on one part of the environment, which is views. And that's because the city relied on the fact that on one of those other parallel tracks that it was pursuing simultaneously, it had done an environmental analysis for the community plan update. So when it 
said, we're going to allow all these more new homes to be built in this area. They did do an environmental impact of, of that new development, um, which, you know, the looked at and analyzed the amount of new traffic that would come from all of those, that all of that building, um, the historical impacts that it might have, the, everything else that goes into a community plan. But crucially, the height limit had not yet been lifted at the time that that community plan update was passed. And so it did not look at the effect that tall buildings would have on the environment. And for the purposes of CEQA views, you know, actual vistas. vistas are an environmental impact that you have to analyze. And so the city tried to make the argument that the environmental impact report for the community plan was sufficient. Right. The proponents for, of this, or the uh, plaintiffs in this lawsuit argue that it was not, and a judge has sided with the plaintiffs. Now, that could be overturned on appeal. Uh, the city had a legal analysis at some point that said that they felt comfortable that they didn't need to do this analysis, and that's why they went forward without it. One judge has disagreed with that, and who knows what an appeals court will say. Um, but, at, you know, the 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 very act of getting a city attorney analysis sort of implies that reasonable people could disagree on this matter. They knew. Let's just be even more. This, direct. Yeah. They knew they were making a gamble. They were mm-hmm. betting that they didn't have to do this work so that they could advance this faster and get it on the ballot, right? And and not have to spend as much money. And because they took that gamble, they have now lost. At least lost. For now. For now. And that means that all these people that spent all this money getting the ballot measure on and passed and now getting their own proposals together to redevelop that land have basically maybe completely wasted their time and money. (laughs) Yeah. Those were beautiful renderings. They were. They. That's true. We and do. We'll, have, always, we'll always have them. You. We'll always have them. Let's frame them. <laughs> yeah. Let's, so does that all make sense? Yeah. That's that's pretty intense. I feel like from now on, mm-hmm. right? This is kind of like whenever you're doing a school project or you're doing something, you're like, maybe I should, you know, read this a second time, or maybe yeah. I should do this, and you don't do it, mm-hmm. and then you're like, crap, and then something crazy happens. Like I feel like the city should. Start just you have, going way above. You have just said something incredibly <laughs> offensive to the city. Yeah. They take great offense that you would say that because in their eyes, they have not made any mistake at all. They have not made a mistake in judgment. They have not done anything wrong. And they still might win on appeal. And they still might win on appeal. And so I think this is a horrendous and and very bad setback for anybody that wanted to see this this area be transformed, including them. Yeah. Yeah. And yet they're extremely defensive that this was the right route to go on. Like people living there, right? Like people living there want to see it. Maybe well, maybe some people. I don't know. Well, so to be clear, the community planning group commu- community in this the the community of community planning groups in the city of San Diego has advanced a view that they are elected to duly represent the interests of their community and that their views should be seen as representative of their community. The community planning group in Midway, to your point, is strong supporters of this plan. Now, people from other community planning groups have 
conveniently decided that that rule doesn't apply in this case. And in fact, the community is not supportive of this measure for reasons. Um, but yes, you are right that if you in any way subscribe to the idea that community planning groups are the voice of their community, this community is represented by one that has said loudly and clearly that they want to remove the height limit for the coastal area. Yeah, there was a uh, a comment in um, the, so it was 10 News, and it was a woman in uh, Ocean Beach. I actually know her, Mandy Havlick. She said, currently the city's initiatives are build, 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 and I don't understand why that has to come at the cost of natural spaces or at the cost of the public. So the natural space she's talking about, of course, is the <laughs> the dismal parking lots and such of the Midway area. But that just highlights that the people who are opposed to this are in the Ocean Beach and Point Loma area. And they just, the, the concept of going around and, 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 and killing the height limit anywhere is again still very, very bad to them. That received wisdom that this is politically toxic is important to keep in mind when you in when you assess the city's decision not to go forward with an environmental analysis of removing the height limit. Remember, this was seen as the third rail of local politics. This was seen as a bold and risky thing to put on the ballot in the first place. This was seen as something you could only do when the council member for that district was on board and that the community planning group for that area was on board, that those were necessary conditions to even think about doing this. And so we know now that it actually was not that controversial. 57% of voters approved it. It wasn't a close vote. But at the time, we didn't know that. What we knew was that no one besides SeaWorld had ever put up a, a measure to tweak the height limit at all, that it was seen as a, like a way to kick the uh, the hornet's nest in local public affairs. And so I think that's all informative about why you wouldn't do an analysis that might conclude, yes, this doing so will have significant negative effects on views in the coastal area, which would be seen as giving ammunition to an opposition of this measure. An opposition that we later found out didn't actually materialize. There really wasn't much of a coordinated campaign against this height limit measure. But again, when they were making decisions, they didn't know that that would be the case. They didn't know that this would be uncontroversial. And so can I conclusively say that that's, that's the reason that they went along with the legal analysis that said it wasn't needed? No, I can't conclusively say that. But I can conclusively say that the political understanding of doing this at the time was that it was risky, controversial, and that one thing you wouldn't have necessarily wanted to get to ha to have public at that time was a view of the effects that this measure would have on heights. Yeah. So, you know, th there's that. The other thing that I would like to say about what you had you had just mentioned, Scott, is these. Th this was a coordinated strategy. This was a coordinated strategy that had been laid out years in advance, and it involved the real estate department and it involved the planning department. But it was a single singular strategy. The planning department was working on the uh, Midway Community Plan. Mm -hmm. The city attorney's office opined that there was no need for a EIR on the Measure E. The real estate department was ensuring that all of these leases were uh, expiring at the same time in the sports arena area. There was a committee a selection committee for the bids in, on the sports arena area that involved members of the planning department and the real estate department. 
So it is not a fruitful endeavor to begin slicing and dicing these who was in charge of what in this process when the truth is it was a city effort and all of these things went together from the beginning and i actually i believe i said on this show at some point i had to tip my cap to the to Mm -hmm. the to the city of san diego that they laid out to us as reporters years ago what they were going to try to do and they did it Mm -hmm. and so now to come back later and be like no 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 no, that that's not a real estate failure that's a that's a planning failure those are different types of failures don't conflate the two to put this as part of some other trend is uh, ahistorical. These, these, this was one single effort yeah, that be, involved lots of different people. And it is okay, in fact, to put it among the list of failures that the city has had mm-hmm. with regard to its real estate and large projects and visions like this, mm-hmm. very much so to the, to the point where that list has gotten so long that it is now Olympic level incompetence <laughs> yeah. uh, as far as how well the city can visualize these things and pull them off. And so- they need to sit back and think about what is going into these in these decisions and visions and why they keep stumbling so poorly on it. Now that they come back and say maybe we'll win on appeal, but again, that's still a major delay. And uh and does it even delay whatever they can do to get this on the ballot again or whatever else is needed to fix the problem? There is one expert we have brought onto the podcast several times now over the course of the pandemic. That's Professor Shane Crotty. He is a research leader of his own team, the Crotty Lab at the La Jolla Institute of Immunology. He is uh, at the forefront of those people who know what happens to the body when the coronavirus, for example, gets into it. And he gave us the gist about vaccines when they were brand new. He explained Delta when it was sweeping the country. And now with Omicron sprouting up just ahead of the holidays, we wanted to get his take on this new variant. Here is my discussion with Shane Crotty. Shane. Hello. How are you? Hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Thank you again for doing this. Uh, you um, are a star among our little community. Um, so do you do Omicron? Uh, Omicron? How do you say it? <laughs> you know, I, I, I was really happy for that for that one day since, since Omicron showed up. There was one day when, like, the biggest thing in the news was the, the discrepancy yeah. between how people pronounced it. And then it was like, oh, thankfully one day without horrible news about Omicron. So I know just talk about how it's pronounced. I feel like it should be Omicron since it's Omega. Yeah. But I can't stop myself from saying Omicron. And apparently that's the more common American thing. All, so. right. All right. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. I do long for the days when we talked about like shark attacks and just, you know, things that were um, much less serious. So, so let's get into this. I am. I don't understand a fundamental thing, and and that is one of the reasons we were so concerned about coronavirus when it started in March 2020, or at least when it became something I cared about, was that it was a, a coronavirus. We have had seen coronaviruses in the past and dealt with them, but that this was a novel coronavirus. This was a new one that our bodies would not be ready for. Can you explain to me the difference between a variant like Omicron, which is so different than some of the other variants of the novel coronavirus, 
and a novel virus. What when when does it actually make the switch from being a novel coronavirus or, or just being a variant of a of a coronavirus? Yeah, so I think at least for coronaviruses, we're going to stick with the the variant language. Um, it, it's possible we would switch to uh, what's called uh, serotypes, which which would be referring to um, if you have a couple of different variations of a virus that aren't both recognized by the immune system antibodies. So for poliovirus, uh, there were three different serotypes. There was poliovirus one, two, and three, and they were all the same virus, but antibodies couldn't see all three of them at the same time. And so they, they replicated the same way, they caused disease the same way, but your immune system saw them differently. Omicron is definitely the biggest shift in a SARS-2 variant in terms of how, how different it is. It's, it's almost 40 mutations in spike compared to I mean, Delta basically had two that mattered. It's, it's not a different species if it were, but it, it has now gotten into the realm of, of the language we use to talk about flu, right? So flus change over time and, and scientists refer to antigenic shift and antigenic drift. And an antigenic shift is when the virus becomes, makes a big jump and it's now, all right, the virus now looks different enough. So your immune system has to deal with it in a, in, in a different way as the, it's the same species of virus, but your immune system, it, it's made a big jump and how much harder it is for the immune system to recognize. And, and this is the first time novel coronavirus has done that. Got it. Okay, so when it first was discovered, I, I was kind of shocked, and I think a lot of people were, that it, there was so much alarm around it. And am, am I correct that, that part of that was, was science-based, where the scientists who looked and discovered and started studying it realized that this was such a significant shift that it could do you know, one of the three things that we worry about. It could, get, it could go around vaccines, it could be more severe, and it could be more transmissible, Right. But that was all kind of theoretical at that point. It felt like they were just they were looking at the way it was and 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 projecting that it might be different. Well, now we've had about I don't know a month to 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 learn about it to see what data comes back about it. Is it holding up in what you've looked at as a significant new threat from this virus? Yes, Omicron's Omicron's a real worry and the the initial looks were in south africa this is the this is the low season for covid 19 so there weren't many cases around and they had a couple of outbreaks that were pretty big outbreaks that were you know uncharacteristic right there were just a lot more cases than i thought and then when they sequenced virus from those outbreaks they saw that the virus was different and that it was very different and had a lot of mutations. So those were the things that raised the alarm bells. And, and the reason to be you know, cautious at the time, the reason to not be too worried at the time was that we'd certainly seen some other variants that had lots of mutations and lots of mutations didn't necessarily mean it was, it, it was a problem. And also that, that sometimes you'll, you'll have these small outbreaks, right, in a city or, or a country that are just related to some large gathering. Right or some some event, and that can uh, that can peter out. But within, I mean, I would say within three days, there was evidence that this was uh, uh, a truly 
significantly transmissible virus because, uh, I mean, for me, the first one was the, the, two air, uh, the two airplanes that landed in the Netherlands that had 61 cases out of 600 passengers. I mean, I've never heard of airplanes having anything close to that for, for COVID-19. So, so that, that, to me, was the first thing that suggested uh, this is really a virus that's spreading a lot. Um, and that's been confirmed essentially every day with news around the world. I mean, the, the test positivity rates are, are really uh, pretty insane for this virus. And then in terms of the sequence of the virus, the simplest explanation of this virus is that it replicated for a long time in some immunocompromised person. And, and slowly over that time, as that person kept making weak antibody responses, the, vi- the, the antibody responses weren't enough to kill off the virus. And so the virus just kept mutating to now not be recognized by the first antibody response and then the second antibody response and the third antibody response by this very immunocompromised individual, such by, let's say, nine months into a chronic infection in, in this person, you know, had this virus that had evolved massively in this one person and then particularly evolved in the spike protein such that um, very few antibodies bound to this virus anymore. And, and, and that then became um, Omicron. Mm-hmm. That's not the only hypothesis out there, but it's the most straightforward one um, to explain the virus. And the reason it's a problem is because um, most of the previous variants, there are like five major neutralizing antibody sites on this virus, okay? And most of the previous variants had a mutation in in one or two of those five. And and this virus has mutations in in four out of five of those antibody sites. Um, And indeed, in data from many labs over the past week, if you look for neutralizing antibodies against Omicron in previously infected individuals, they're generally none. Uh, basically, the antibodies just don't recognize this virus. And there are little to no neutralizing antibodies in people who've gotten two doses of RNA vaccine, two doses of Pfizer or Moderna. The virus has mutated that much. And, and so in a nutshell, that's the depressing news about, about Omicron. It's, it's, it's spreading so fast and so well, um, probably because it's just got so many potential targets. Um, uh, it can still infect uh, people with natural immunity or, or, or vaccinated people. And so it's, it's spreading quickly. Uh, and so to get to the good news, <laughs> it, it, it's that, the, the antibody responses to the regular vaccine, yeah, aren't good against Omicron with two doses, but three doses of, of the vaccine looks really good against, against Omicron. So uh, three doses of Pfizer or three doses of Moderna have really quite impressive neutralizing antibodies against this virus. And immunologically, that's really impressive because what you're talking about is here's this you know, quote unquote original recipe vaccine, right? And you, you give it once, you give it twice, you, you've got neutralizing antibodies that can recognize the original virus and a couple of related variants. 
But then if you give it a third time, your immune system's never seen Omicron, never seen anything really like it. And yet now it starts making neutralizing antibodies that can recognize Omicron. That, that's actually one of the things that, that my lab and, and some other labs have studied a lot is that this fundamental immunological process of how the immune system makes guesses about what a virus might look like in the future and try and make antibodies against things that it's never seen before, but look kind of similar to this other thing. And so that's been the, honestly, the best news of the past two weeks is that, is that anybody that can go out and get a booster shot will have antibodies that, that should um, largely prevent infection. So that, that's fascinating. So is that a function? It's not like the booster is a different recipe, as you said. It's not different. And, it's and exactly so, the same thing. And that's so. So the the ability of the antibodies to adapt is is at that point what am I, a volume thing? Like because there's so many of them, they have more uh, ability to to sort of test what works. Nope. the The antibodies are literally mutating. Why would the second dose not have that characteristic? Because it's a learning process. Yeah. The, you know, you go take a class twice, you learn some things, you go to the third class, you learn some more things. It. Um, it literally is a, your immune system is, is, is learning from each time it recognizes it. If you want to, I mean, uh, I, I guess if I, if I use a coffee cup as an explanation, uh, uh, there might be like one easy spot on the coffee cup for antibodies to recognize. And so the immune system learns to recognize that spot after one or two doses, that's easy to recognize. But then there's this other spot on the coffee cup that's kind of smaller, kind of hard to recognize, maybe down, you know, down near here. And so it needs a third chance at seeing the spike to say, oh yeah, there's this, I got antibodies that recognize here and here, but there's this other spot. And, and, and now you make antibodies that recognize that spot. And it turns out that that harder spot to recognize is still there on Omicron, but the easy spot got mutated on Omicron. Got it. Fascinating. Thank you. So, does that um, does that mean we your immune system needs to see Omicron to do that, or does it? No. Okay. Uh, okay. This is really good. Thank you. So one of the things you helped myth bust for me uh, a couple of times ago, and again, thanks for spending all this time with me, is is the idea that as viruses evolve, there's kind of a myth that they get less severe, they get less deadly, and and the the sort of simple myth was that because they don't kill their host, they, they, they obviously survive better. They might transmit more, but they don't, they don't actually kill their host. Now that you disproved, I think very eloquently, but I think that there was some hope that maybe this does transmit a lot more, but actually isn't as severe. And, and there was kind of two explanations for that, that I read. One was that, well, it, it is because we have so much immunity now built up from previous infections and, 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 and immunizations but the other one was maybe it really isn't that much more severe. Where are you now on on whether it's less severe, uh, maybe more transmittable, or whether it's it's just that we are we are better prepared for it? Yeah, great question, uh, great summary. Um, it's the it's definitely the question we all want an answer to. Um, I will say, it has been stated way too often in the news and international news in the past week that that this is a milder virus or quote unquote appears to be milder. There is no basis for that statement. That is, um, I I feel like I've never seen anything stated so often (laughs) um, every single day that's 
that's been based on so little, it, it really is wishful thinking. Um, I mean, and, and I hope it turns out to be true, right? <laughs> uh, but but there's, there's not data that, that supports that. So something to know about the variant is that we certainly know it's transmitting quickly in in populations that have a significant amount of immunity. And so as you were um, rightly saying, Scott, so one of the possibilities would be that it will turn out to be less virulent in immune populations because people have been vaccinated or they've been previously infected. And so maybe they don't have enough antibodies to uh, stop the virus at the front door, but they've got enough immunity to keep themselves from getting really sick, right? And and uh, as a reminder, overall, this is a virus that transmits very quickly, right? You can have transmission from person to person in about four days with no symptoms. And so if you don't have a significant amount of antibodies, you, uh, you're not going to be able to prevent the transmission. So the virus is going to be passing from person to person, um, even if those people have enough immunity to keep themselves from getting uh, uh, seriously ill which we don't know for sure is what's going on, but it certainly matches the observation so far of, well, gee, why is this virus spreading so quickly through populations, right? Um, so, well, whatever immunity people do have isn't stopping the transmission, yeah. um, but but hopefully is yeah stopping the, the severe disease. So one of the things we talked about last time was that you and I were both kind of unsure whether we were going to get our third booster. And, and I think we both went, absolutely we ended up getting it. You're, you're there now. Now, I guess the question I have is, are we just going to have like endless boosters? There's already a fourth discussion. Uh, I think hasn't Israel already done a fourth or, or, or required a fourth. There's, there seems like there's, we're just going to keep going or is, 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 is there a kind of an in path or, or, or a vision of where this leads? I think Israel's put a fourth shot basically on their calendar, you know, as a, as a, as a placeholder. Okay. Um, so I would say the hope would be at this point, our best case scenario is the third dose does a really good job. And so again, with, with the third dose, you're definitely getting good neutralizing antibodies against uh, Omicron. And so the question is, are those antibodies durable? Uh, and then will the virus change even more, right? Those are the, those are the unknowns. We should know pretty soon if those antibodies are, are durable or not. If they're not durable, um, it looks like, yeah, more boosters would be on the horizon, which would, well, you know, which would suck. Um, uh, or that we have to change up the vaccine somehow so that the, the antibodies are more durable, that it, that it you know, in, in that scenario, it'd be sort of the RNA vaccines are great at generating short-term antibodies and they're great at generating some of the other parts of immune memory, but they just have this Achilles heel. Um, and so you'd have to switch up to, to something else to try and do that. We, we should have information on that soon. And in terms of variants, I mean, in general, what I'd said in the summer, right, was that Delta was such a jump in viral evolution that we had to expect that that wasn't the end of it, that it would, it, it would be nice, right? If, if, if that, that was the end of it, but it seemed more likely that the virus had at least one more change in it that would be uh, significant. And given that Delta was already so transmissible, it seemed like the simplest path for the virus would be 
not to become inherently more transmissible than Delta, but to have more immune evasion, more antibody evasion, so that it would be able to transmit between people even that Delta couldn't transmit between. And in fact, Omicron fits that description. Um, but to be fair, Omicron's much more different than I expected. I, I was expecting, all right, it would be Delta with a couple of mutations might be what, you know, what shows up. And instead it was uh, a different virus that basically predates alpha and yet has 37 mutations. In. That's fascinating. So this isn't a, a variation of Delta. This is a variation of the original one. Yeah. And so there's been some confusion about that, that the closest known relative of this virus is from mid 2020. It, it's branch point, quote unquote, predates alpha. So it has mutations in it that look like alpha or look like beta or look like gamma, but it, it looks like they evolved independently. It really doesn't look much like delta at all. Um, so it is different than delta. To me, it mostly looks like uh, alpha gone crazy is sort of uh, the, the way I would describe yeah. the uh, uh, colloquially. Um, One of the things you said this summer that, that I ended up getting in a kind of argument with my friends about was that we were all going to at some point be introduced to the virus. The virus was going to come around to us and our immune system was going to have to either fight it off or, or, or deal with it. It, it and it seems like with omicron and and transmissibility you know significantly increasing that seems even more clear like the the virus will make a make its way through the population and it's 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 about how well you're prepared for it when it does is is that still a fair statement absolutely so one of the things that i'm struggling with is that if you get t if you test positive for the virus the recommendation and the kind of the mandate still is that no matter what your vaccination status, you have to be 10 days in isolation or whatever. Like you need to stay away from people for that long. I, I, I'm starting to grasp that like if that's the case for a while, that's going to be really, if we all get exposed to Omicron or a version and we all have to stay 10 days away from people at some point, that just seems like a really significant um, constraint on life for, for maybe many years do you see how that might change or is that is that a, a, a thing we just kind of have to start to grapple with? Uh, certainly with the way it's played out in the past, right, with Alpha and then Delta was uh, people who needed some time to get some experience. Uh, I mean, uh, public health officials basically needed some time to get some experience with the virus and say, okay, for this variant, right, how... How long do people say positive? How long do people transmit? How well are the vaccines working? Um, and then and then adjust some of those criteria based on it, right? Which was, uh, for example, that if you could show that you tested negative, right, you could then uh, go back to work. Uh, but this general issue is definitely the one that uh, hospitals have faced with their staff, right? That uh, anybody who turns up positive can't then come into work, which is one of the reasons to include them in in the original booster recommendation, right? Yeah. Was that it, it wasn't so much about worry about them ending up with severe disease. It was that so many healthcare workers were just being taken out of the workforce for so many days uh, just by, you know, showing up positive that uh, you, you need to limit that as much as possible to keep your workforce going. But one hypothesis about how Omicron developed was, you know, that there was a, 
somebody who had to sit with the virus for, for maybe months and it evolved and, and it fought off their immune system to the point where it, it evolved into something that was powerful, transmissible, all those. Are, are we assuming that especially as so many people remain unvaccinated and so many countries remain undervaccinated, that that is just something with, you know, 8 billion people out there or whatever that is going to keep happening for, for a long time. Like that, that this virus, there's just so much, so much of it around and, and it, and it can change so fast that with especially unvaccinated people, like it will, it will develop and evolve and, and we're just gonna have to buckle up for, for Omicrons and, and whatever comes uh, for quite some time. Yeah, it's a it's a real unpleasant uh, possibility. I think I think the scientific assessment of the virus early on was uh, largely held up, which is that uh, coronaviruses don't mutate very fast, um, and and that indeed in 2020, right, there was basically just one mutation in the virus that showed up and you know uh, swept the whole globe. And even several of the major variants of concern had, had just a handful of, of mutations, and most of them were pretty similar to each other. So it, it was largely playing by expectations. And I, I think what Omicron is, quote unquote, telling us uh, is that you give the virus a chance to, to infect you know, billions of people. Um, and as part of that, large numbers of immunocompromised people who, who can't clear the infection and so end up having a whole lot of virus in them, um, instead of picking up one mutation at a time, you get these um, explosive events. And, and alpha was one. Alpha pretty clearly came from some severely immunocompromised people, uh, person, sorry. And it, it seems reasonably likely that, that, that Omicron's the result of something similar. And, and so, yeah, that, that it may keep happening because we... Uh, sort of as a society did not manage to uh, bring this thing under control enough or limit the number of infections. If I want to look at it optimistically, it's going back to the three dose of vaccine or in fact, hybrid immunity. So infected people who got vaccinated also make really nice neutralizing antibodies against Omicron, um, uh, just like three dose vaccinated people. And again, that's with your immune system never having seen Omicron. So your immune system has been making some pretty incredible guesses about what the variants might look like, you know, and being able to neutralize them. And so it's uh, an optimistic look would be with another lesson to the immune system, right? Or an Omicron specific booster as a lesson of, of a virus that, that looks pretty different. Uh, maybe the immune system really may be able to corner this virus that, uh, that it, it the virus has shown an impressive amount of plasticity and flexibility and, and, and mutation that, that really uh, wasn't expected and, and you know didn't show up when 100 million people had been infected. But once you got a billion people infected, now uh, you know the, to some extent it's a numbers game. But yeah, I mean, I think Omicron has put some more unpleasant futures back on the table. You know, with I mean, with Alpha. I mean, the vaccines just completely crushed alpha, right? I mean, alpha was going extinct in vaccinated populations. I mean, it just, it, it all worked so well. And, and even with Delta, you know, vaccinated populations were doing, were doing well. But uh, I definitely think the lessons so far from Omicron are that, 
the virus is showing that it's, it's, it's been more clever than, than most anybody expected. And so it, it does have the, the possibility of, of, uh, of substantial more problematic evolution in the future. Uh, and, and that for now, the only good news is that three doses of vaccine looks like it's, it's going to work uh, well against the virus. And, and in the meantime, we, we wait to learn more about what is the variance of, of Omicron, the intrinsic variance, if you will, and uh, how durable is the immunity going to be from, from three-dose vaccines? I think, I think that's where we stand. Yeah. Well, one of the things you helped me understand um, several months ago was that this is a race. You're, uh, the virus comes into your body and your body races to fight it and it races to replicate and that's a race kind of playing out in all throughout the globe right now, a, a race of numbers, like you said. And, and uh, it seems like the best thing we could leave people with is the best way to help humanity with that race is go get a booster. And, um, and so go get a booster. And Shane Crotty from La Jolla Institute of uh, Immunology, thanks for helping us understand it some more. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego. You still have time to join our fundraising campaign. If you appreciate all that work, analysis, explanation, and interviews, we're so close to our big goal. You can help us get over the finish line at vosd.org slash podcast 2021. That's vosd.org slash podcast 2021. That's USD.org slash podcast 2021. Can you tell? I think it's important. Thank you so much for helping. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. Andrew Keats and Andrea Lopez Villafania are our managing editors. And this show is produced by Nate John with technician support from Ed Adam Greenfield. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.